your Bibles with you today, I want to invite you once again to open up to John chapter 8. We're continuing in this chapter. We'll bring it to a close today. As I pick up the reading in just a moment, I'll read a section of what we looked at last week to lead us up into the final portion today. It's on uh, page 894 of the Blue Bibles if you'd like to follow along in them or, of course, printed in your bulletin as well. When we began John chapter 8, we saw the dramatic statement of Jesus that opened this particular section where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as soon as he made that statement, of course, the debate began. The objections started flowing in to that very statement, how it was made, who made it, whether or not it could be supported. But Jesus continues on, and we saw the next extreme statement made by him in verses 31 and 32 last week. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And once again, the minute you make those statements, the debate ensued, the rancor increased. The water, if you want to use that analogy, the water is getting ready to boil because if you just told me you're going to set me free, what you must mean is that you think I'm a slave. Well, Jesus drops a third bombshell in the statement, in the section that I'm about to read for us, the third bombshell in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And as soon as he makes that statement, we are at a full boil, a full boil from the people who are around him who are incensed that he would speak in that kind of a way. And of course, it boils over with a final statement in this section that begins, truly, truly, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was. So here, this portion of God's extraordinary word as he speaks then and as he speaks now. I'll begin at 39, take it to the end of the chapter. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you you are not 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, broadening horizons with a narrowing focus. Let's pray together. Lord, we are indeed standing on holy ground in listening to these things. Uh, It is shaky ground. It is shaky for all of us as hearers. It is shaky ground for me as a pastor and as preacher of this word today. Speak to us through your word and grant us grace to be able to hear it. In your name we pray, amen. I have shared with you before, I know I have shared this before, so I'm repeating myself with full awareness that I have a fear of heights. It's not a super acute fear of heights and it's not as bad as it was Uh, when I was younger, but I will not be able to join with any of you who want to go out on a glass pier that's over top, that's off the top of a building, or a glass pier that looks over the edge of the Grand Canyon. I can't do it. If, uh, If I stand next to a tall building and I look up, it does not happen when I look up at the ceiling, so it's not happening right at the moment, but if I look up, Uh, or if I get too close to a ledge of a pretty significant cliff, or if people I love get near to the edge of a pretty significant cliff, 
Well, there's a number of things that start to happen inside of me. I, I get dizzy. I, I lose my balance. I get weak in the knees. I can feel it. It's an odd, strange feeling that happens in my knees, and it's disorienting, and I lose perspective even if I know that I'm standing on solid ground, even if there's, I know there's no way I can fall, nevertheless, that starts to happen inside of me when this takes place. Now, maybe, and I'm glad for you if you don't, maybe you don't share my particular uh, minor phobia of a fear of significant heights, but can you relate to that feeling? Can you appreciate that with something in your life in which you would get that same kind of physical experience. Maybe if I said, hey, by the way, come on up and preach right now. Um, maybe it's speaking in front of a group that would do it to you. Or something else, enclosed spaces, whatever it is. You can think about it. Perhaps you can imagine it. At this point in John chapter 8, up to the section, the last section, beginning there at verse 48, the heads, the hearts, the minds of the people around Jesus were spinning. The impact, the percussion of the words of Jesus, the claims that he has made in front of them about himself are dizzying. They're maddening. They are disorienting. They're infuriating. Maybe we could describe the people who are there, a little bit of pun, a little bit of play on word, blinded by the light, concussed by these statements of truth, by the blows struck by truth, as Jesus gives one statement about himself after another. That's true up to this point. And then you get to 48 through the end, because that dizziness, that fury is going to get much worse or much better, depending on how you look at this passage. Because Jesus is going to broaden the horizons, he's going to narrow the focus as Jesus in this section begins to speak about time, begins to push against the ideas of time. He's talked about light, about freedom, about truth, about big themes, and now we're going to push against our understanding of time. Discussions about time can be, in and of themselves, dizzying. And when we talk about time, we try to figure out a way to get our footing somewhere. And one of the ways it's helpful in terms of getting your footing and thinking about time is thinking about a beginning and an end. When does something start and when does something finish? That seems fairly stable. It seems fairly stable uh, for us to be able to talk about time and talk about it in the sense of there being a past and a present and a future. They seem to be uh, safe categories. And of course, when we talk about time experientially, we can talk about birth and death. They appear to be constant to us, and in fact, we might say, well, Scripture affirms this idea, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 
says, there's a time to be born and there is a time to die. A time when, using the words of Jesus in this passage, this is a common Jewish way of phrasing it, a time for all of us when we will see death. And that's the phrase, see death. That's the the idea. Uh, Remember in Luke chapter 2, it was revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the redemption of Israel. So it seems fairly straightforward that there's a time when we will see death, right? What, What does the Bible say? 70 to 80 years, give or take, a time when we will die. For the young, that seems forever away. That seems impossible to imagine. For the old, it seems like tomorrow. It seems like it could be this week or next week. I want to give you another example of the phrase, see death, because I need you to hear this. This is a call about a thousand years, probably in Jerusalem, by a sage, by a writer in Jerusalem who says this, it's in Psalm 89, remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? What man can live and never see death? That's the question. A thousand years before Jesus, 3,000 years before we are sitting here, and 2,000 years ago, there's another man with a crowd around him in Jerusalem. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He responds to the sage. He responds to the psalm writer. There's a way. There's a way that you won't see death. Never see it. Death is the great leveler. It's the equalizer. It is the curse. Many things can be uncertain, but you can count on, you know, death and, right, death and taxes. You can count on those two things. Death is inevitable. No one stops death. You can't get around death. You can't avoid it. You can pretend about it. You can close your eyes to it. You can pretend and just say, I'll never have to deal with that issue. But it doesn't matter. Death doesn't care. It doesn't care what you think about it, how much you protest against it. It just waits. Death, the word in and of itself, is a take-your-breath-away term. It's an awful word. If a doctor came to you and said, listen, I've got the pill. I've got the the pill that's going to make you youthful forever, and you will never die. You would call him nuts, or you'd call him a fool, Death is the outer boundary. It is the horizon of our lives. It is the dark horizon of our lives. It is the sunset out there on the horizon. That is what death is. We know what it is. And Jesus 
addresses that boundary, that time limit that is set out there, not by promising us a few more years. I'll give you a few more years. I'll give you a few more months. But by saying, of death, there's a way in which you will never see death. In other words, Ecclesiastes 3 just got an adjustment. A time to die, Jesus just took an eraser and went, I'm taking that out now, because if you keep my word, you will never see it. The horizon just got obliterated. The one who is the light of the world says of the sunset to those who believe in him, it will not come. He says tonight, I'm the light. The idea of end, which seems like such a clear and unshakable fixture, is now shaken. Jesus is declaring an end to the curse for those who will keep his word. Mind you, this is not a universalism. This is not just a promise that's out there. Everything's good and well, and everybody is going to live forever. Keep my word, is what he says. It is required. Keep my word. And that parallels what we've seen before in this text. Abide in my word in verse 31. And in verse 12, whoever follows me conditionally, conditionally, conditioned upon keeping his word, abiding in him, Jesus has taken the human future and stretched it out to eternity. No more death. I'm stretching this out to an end of time. As we read, and as we listen to that, and we think about the world, and we think about all that we've known, this, of course, would seem to us and seemed to the people who heard Jesus at the time to be the final straw. What else can you say? Now they respond. Now we know that you've got a demon. Now, now we know this. Jesus, you are delusional. What could you possibly be talking about? That's the conclusion. And as if Abraham was needed, they bring him back into the conversation as evidence. This, of course, was a bad move. That was a strategically bad move. It did not go well to bring up Abraham in the last discussion. It certainly will not go well to bring up Abraham in this one either. But here's their point. If Abraham's words, the words that he said, if the words that the prophets said, if they were not enough, their words, to keep them from death. How can you be saying that your words, that your words have such horizon shifting, death-crushing, time-redefining power? How can you be saying that 
about yourself. Who would say that about themselves? And it yields the question, which is exactly the question you would expect if Abraham's words couldn't do that, and you're saying that, are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Is that what you're saying? Now, I know it's been a while, but if you think back to John chapter 4, Jesus had the encounter in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And he had been telling this Samaritan woman they were at a well that Jacob had given to them. And he had been telling this woman of the potential of a living water, of a water that when you drank of that water, you would have eternal life. And what question does she ask? Are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than Jacob? Now we come to this side of the story. Are you, are you saying that you are greater than Abraham? And of course then what ensues is this dialogue that we've got here before us. Who do you make yourself out to be? None of us would say that. None of us standing here would sit here and say, I'm greater than Abraham. And yet you're going to say that? Who in the world do you think you are? And in this conversation, Jesus speaks, and, and, and you've heard the words now read aloud for you. Jesus speaks in a way that implies he has communicated, communed with, and understands the thoughts of Abraham. I tell you the truth, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced to see the coming day of redemption. And of course, the response is, as you would expect. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. How'd that work out? You've seen Abraham. They know how life works. They know how death works. Life's got a beginning, and life has an end. Maybe Jesus' brothers, remember them from back in John chapter 7, they were trying to get him to go up to Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus' brothers are here. Maybe they remember when he was a little kid. But they know how life works. It's defined. It's bound. It's finite. Unless, well, uh, unless you're talking about God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And that's the exception here. For the rest of us, who can deliver us from the power of Sheol? Who can take us out of that? Who, who can make it so that we would never see death? And Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was. Now, who knows? Who knows how it was said? Who knows how long of a pause went right there? But what could come after that? What, what Before Abraham was, well, maybe. Before Abraham was, let's talk about Adam. Before Abraham was, there was Noah. Do you remember him? He lived a long time. There was Methuselah. Do you remember him? He lived a long time. Do you remember Enoch? 
That's an interesting one. Taken up, didn't see death. Jesus could have said anything like that. Before Abraham was, but instead of something linear, instead of taking a timeline approach, Jesus finishes the sentence with the most outrageous, extreme, extraordinary statement he could possibly make before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's not the first time in this chapter nor in the gospel that we have seen Jesus make an I am statement. It is the first time we've seen it quite like that. If they could somehow have excused the other times, even in this chapter, when Jesus has made statements like that, maybe they thought, okay, he's speaking in hyperbole, he's using this illustratively, he certainly doesn't mean what it seems like he means. If they could do that with the other examples of the usage, there was no mistaking this one. There's no get around on this one. It stops right there. For Abraham was, I am. The man standing in front of them just claimed the name, the nature of the eternal, living, covenant-keeping God, and he said, that's me. He obliterated in the first or in the third bombshell statement the horizon of time future that way. You'll never see death. And now we go to the other side. And he obliterates the idea of beginning, the idea of birth, by saying, no, no, no. No, no, no. I'm spreading out before you the eternal present. Now, I am standing in front of you. And this is where I imagine the knees went weak and the shiver went down the spine and, and the earth shook a little bit and the people started to totter. What in the world is being said to us by the person who is in front of us? Who is this? Who is the one who is speaking? Now, let me say something to us as we hear these words. If Jesus was I am then, he's I am now. Now, that's a time statement, okay? There's no way, there's no way I can't make a time statement as a man in time. If he was I am then, he is I am now. And he speaks to us. He speaks to me. He speaks to you through the living word that is ever a living word by the one who is not bound by time, who now speaks to you and says and declares, I am. The horizons shattered. And so we ask the question that we asked back in John chapter 7, back at the beginning even of this chapter, who is it that speaks like this? You remember the options? Oh, he's a good man. 
No, 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 he's a false teacher. No, he's a crazy man. He's a demon-possessed man. He's a hateful, spiteful man. He's a Samaritan. He's a prophet. He's a blasphemer. He's a liar. He's a mystic. He's a time traveler. He's a physicist explaining how time works. I don't know about you. You ever had a conversation with a physicist about time? Woo, unless you are one. That's a dizzying conversation. Science fiction plays with it all the time. Did you watch Interstellar? And you see Interstellar and the folding of time upon time and things like that. 2001, 2010, did you get confused? Time can be an abstract concept. It can be incomprehensible. But the purpose of Jesus is, of course, not to dazzle us, to dazzle his hearers with some kind of a scientific or a philosophic explanation, description of the complexities of time. Instead, as he's broadening the horizons, he narrows the focus. His hearers were not offended by a discussion of the boundaries of time. They would have been happy to engage in that. Talk about resurrection of the dead. Is there such a thing as the resurrection of the dead? Let's debate whether or not there's a resurrection of the dead. Let's debate the origin of the soul. When does the soul come into being? They weren't offended by a discussion about time. What they were offended by is the fact that Jesus made it personal. Personal. Don't do it right now, but maybe later today. Take a look at the section from 48 to 59 and particularly the sections where Jesus is speaking, and count up the amount of times that he says, I, my, or myself. It's one thing to talk about time. But when you get that personal about it, when you identify it with yourself, when you speak in a way that implies you have authority over it, or are outside of its boundaries, or have the authority to change the boundaries for the people who are listening to you. That is what gets offensive. This is one of the great things. I tried to show it to us from John chapter 1 when we began there, is John, Jesus, personalizes creation in this gospel. Personalizes all of it. An infinite, vast universe, impersonal. John says, no, no, no. All things were created through him. All of it is unto him. All of it belongs unto him. He personalizes water. I'm living water. He personalizes bread. I am the bread of life. He personalizes light. I'm the light of the world. He personalizes truth. Truth is found in me. I am the truth. He personalizes time by saying, I am. All of those great things are personal in Jesus. He speaks of them with authority, and he attaches them uniquely to himself, which to his hearers, when they listen to him speaking like this, it sounds to them like what? Like boasting, like vainglory, like who would say something like that? You're 
you're, you're, you're conceited. You're full of a weird and, and incorrect, but arrogance in the way that you speak of yourself, in the way that you glorify yourself. And Jesus says, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm not in this for my glory. I didn't come to be in this for my glory. I was sent here. I'm not seeking my glory. I am seeking my Father's glory. And my Father has given me words that I must say to you. In speaking, I am glorifying him, not seeking my own honor and exaltation. Hebrews 5, 5, so Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The eternally begotten of the Father, before all worlds, is standing in front of them. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father and the Spirit, as we move through the gospel, will glorify the Son. The Son glorifies Him by declaring the truth, and here's the truth. If you keep my word, you will never see death. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, here we are, listening to the same words from the ever-present one, from the ever-living one. What do you do? It is a dizzying love that is on display in front of us. How do you respond? Pick up stones? Pick up stones? Or by His grace embrace the sun? Hear the question. First, the statement. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Yep, there's one. There's one who can deliver your soul from the power of Sheol the one who holds creation in his hand, who speaks and it is light, who says to death, no, 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 you're overcome. You'll never see death by abiding in him. Lord God, we don't know, I don't know what else to say about it. These are words that we can't even hear without you working in our lives. And so, do the good work. Great Savior. Great I am. And with our hearts, and with our minds, and with our lives, 
Help us to keep and abide and love as we've been loved. We pray in your name. Amen.